Good morning. We're going to um, finish our look, at least for a brief period of time, into um, the speeches in the book of Acts. We're going to consider Paul's conversation with Jesus. Um, after Stephen's death, Paul, at that point known as Saul, was convinced that he ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul talks about his experience in both Acts chapter 9 and in Acts chapter 26. Uh, in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, he says this, we read this, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciple after the death of Stephen. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Paul believed, and at that point Saul believed he was on a mission from God, when as, we, as it turned out, he was on a mission from God. And now we pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 26, and Paul gives us some details in Acts 9 that he leaves out. And here's what we read beginning in verse 9 of Acts chapter 26. Paul writes, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief, chief priests about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is a prod. It's a sharpened stick that's used to control animals, to force them to go in the direction you want them to go. So what you did with a goad, you would go behind the animals and prod them in the flanks with the sharpened stick and move them along. To kick against the goads is to resist that goading influence, to resist goading in the direction one is goading you to walk in and to kick against it. What does Jesus mean when he tells Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads? It's common to interpret this, and I hear most often, to interpret that it is God that is doing the goading and that God is prodding Paul to try to get Paul to recognize Jesus' divinity, prodding him to do so. Look at his miracles. Look at what he's saying. And Paul then, if God is the one who is goading and prodding, Paul keeps on resisting, kicking against God's influence, kicking against God's goads. Most often when I hear this passage, that's how it is interpreted. 
and this appeals to us in a way. You know, it appeals that, you know, God is a gentleman. He doesn't goad anyone. God doesn't impose his influence on human will. And while that might be pleasant to think about, I don't think we're going to be able to convince Paul to buy this view of God. What he says in his account, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. Paul didn't fall to the ground because he wanted to. He fell to the ground because he had to. God's influence over Paul at this juncture was not resistible. It was irresistible. God wasn't being a gentleman. He wasn't, he didn't, he didn't step away from imposing on Paul's will. And when God exerts influence in this context, Paul is unable to resist. So what is Jesus saying then? If Jesus isn't putting the goads in God's hands when he says it's hard for you to kick against the goads, if it's not God doing the goading, then who is doing the goading? Whose hands does Jesus put the goads in? Um, a goad in the Bible is also the weapon of an oppressed people. Um, if you are a conquered nation, what ended up happening with the Philistines is that they would not allow any of the common folk to be able to have a sword. And so only Saul and Jonathan, in fact, let me read the passage. Um, this comes from Second uh, Chronicles, I think. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes, and sickles sharpened. The price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and mattocks, a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and adders and axes, and for repointing goads. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. So goads, sickles, farm implements were the only weapons available to Israel at this point because they had been conquered by the Philistines. So I think then one thing we would think of when we think of goads is that the goad is, a we is the weapon of a resistance movement that is occurring within a conquered nation. Um, and in this is what a goad reflects. Then as a Jewish leader, um, Paul would have been pressured to join the Jewish resistance movement to Roman rule. There were many at the time who were trying to push off Roman rule. Um, several hundred years earlier, the Pharisees, which Paul was one of, they represented the one of the key groups that was instrumental in causing an uprising within Israel that allowed them to throw off Greek rule. In Paul's day, the same type of movement was gaining momentum. There was a cry, an outcry from more and more in Israel to throw off Roman rule. And if that's true, then part of the influence that was being brought against Paul was that he should 
resist in the way that other Israelites were resisting to Roman rule. Um, the Israelites believed that God was behind their rebellion, and they were goading Paul to take up their cause. They told him that it was God's will. Uh, there's a problem for Paul, and the problem is that he is a Pharisee and a Jewish leader, but he's also a Roman citizen, and that creates a conflict of interest within Paul. He pledged allegiance to two different countries, to Israel and to the Roman Empire. Jews were goading him into championing, championing the resistance movement. And as a Jew, this was a cause that he could get his arms around. As a Jew, the problem was he was a Roman citizen as well. And that means he would kick against this goading influence. It was hard for him to resist the prodding, the goading, to join the Jewish national, nationalistic movement. It was hard for him to kick against the goads. And again, so we see with Paul, he was being pulled in half by divided loyalties. Turned toward Rome, he felt the pull by Israel. Turned toward Israel, he felt the pull by Rome. This was hard for him to kick against. It was exhausting. Two hooks in his heart, and they were exerting influence and pulling him apart. What did he do with the tension? I think this is why, this is what Jesus is getting at. Jesus asked the question, and then I think he answers it. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Then he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I think the implication could be that what Paul did to try to satisfy this tension within himself is that he went after Christians. This was certainly put him in favorable um, light with Jews, and Romans had no issue with quelling a Christian uprising. So by persecuting and going after Christians, Paul could kind of solve, soften this tension within himself. He was able to make peace with his split between being Jewish and being Roman. This gives us a picture of Paul and his dividedness. How do we apply this to ourselves? Let's tack down a definition of goading that can apply to us. And I'm going to suggest that goading is fog-based spiritual influence. And when I think about fog, F-O-G is an, an acronym, fear, obligation, and guilt. Goading is fog-based spiritual influence. When we are exposed to or when we are exposing somebody else to fear, obligation, and guilt in order to try to get them to do something that God would have them to do. When we use fear and obligation and guilt as prods, I think that's where goading starts to apply to us. I think that's what's happening with Paul. It happens with us, maybe for different reasons. And when, when do we goad then? When do we goad? We goad when we use fog to influence people to obey God. It's when we put shoulds in God's mouth. You better do this. You better. When we use fear 
obligation and guilt to should people into obeying God. Um, that's when we go, when we turn up the heat, when we make somebody believe that if you don't do what God wants, at this point, you're going to experience something inconvenient, something fearsome. You are obligated to obey God. You better obey, and that's using prods and goads to try to get somebody to obey God. That's when we goad. But why do we do that? Why do we goad people? I think we, we goad people because at some point, I think we believe that God goads people. Um, I think Paul, in his day, I think it would have been very difficult for him to figure out whether or not the Pharisees were speaking for God when they said, Paul, God wants you to champion, champion this Jewish resistance. He wants you to push off Roman rule. Paul would have been confused. He would have maybe felt, well, maybe that is God's will. Maybe God is behind this goading. Maybe he is trying to get me to push off Roman influence. Uh, it, it was, he, he wasn't sure, though. When Jesus says this, he goes, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. The implication is there's no goads in Jesus' hand. And I think what Jesus is indicating, the goads that you're, the goading that's happening, it's not God that's goading. It's those who claim to speak for him, who misrepresent him. They are the ones who are goading. God is not goading you, Paul. And I think this may be what he ends up understanding when Jesus causes him to, um, to be uh, kicked off his donkey on the way to uh, Damascus. Uh, there's no goads in his hand. Um, how do we apply this? When somebody claims to speak for God, and when they use fear, obligation, and guilt on God's behalf, you're being goaded. Again, I want to say that again. When somebody claims to speak for God, and they use fear, obligation, and guilt to force you or compel you to do what God wants you to do, you're being goaded. Here's what John says in 1 John 4, 18 to 19. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. It seems to suggest here that God doesn't use the fear of punishment to motivate us to obey him. And there's a reason. Obedience that God requires is love. And it is not possible to frighten somebody into loving somebody else. It is not possible to obligate someone to love somebody else. It is not possible to guilt someone into loving somebody else. There is some ability to motivate people using fear, obligation, and guilt. But the love that passes for love in the world is narrower and shallower than the love that God requires of us and asks of us. The love that God would have us to express is very broad and very deep. 
it applies to those who would be our enemies. And it's it's deep in that it's it it takes from what we have and sacrifices for somebody else. And that kind of love, the kind of love that God demonstrated in sending Christ, it cannot be driven by goading, by prodding. You cannot use fog, fear, obligation, and guilt to get somebody to love with the kind of love that God asks us to love. And as it says, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. That's what it says. We love because he first loved us. To love as God loves, we, we are not goaded or driven. We are drawn by his love to love as he would have us to love. Let me pray first. Father, thank you for um, clarity. There is a thing here that we might assume many of us have come to believe that you prod us, try to get us, guilt us, make us afraid to try to get us to do the right thing. It's common. It's the way we motivate people, and it happens in the world. It happens horizontally, but it doesn't happen vertically. You don't use fear of judgment to get us to do what you want us to do because it doesn't work. You want us to love, and fear can't do that. I'd ask that we would be clear. Again, all of us, it's hard to do what you want us to do. And we use guilt towards ourselves or towards others. And I pray that you give us clarity as we go on to understand what you do use and what you don't use to try to get us to obey. You use love. You don't use goading. Thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.